Why don't you take your Bible, open it up to Joshua chapter 8, and we'll get started. Joshua chapter 8. If you found that, why don't you stand? We'll read together God's Word. Joshua 8, we'll start in verse 30, and read to verse 35. What a beautiful passage put right here in this unusual narrative. Right in the middle of Joshua and the people of Israel rolling through victory, and they stop. To worship. What I hope to do today is use this passage to instruct our thoughts on worship, our approach to worship, our belief in worship, our practice of worship, what we think about worship, and how we live our lives in light of worship. Joshua chapter 8, we'll start in verse 30 and read to verse 35. Grass withers and the flowers of faith, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's begin in verse 30. At that time, Joshua built an altar to the Lord, the God of Israel, on Mount Ebal just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded the people of Israel, as it is written in the book of the law of Moses. Then he's going to quote Deuteronomy 20, uh, 17, 27. An altar of uncut stones, upon which no man has wielded an iron tool, and they offered on it a burnt offering and the Lord, uh, to the Lord and sacrificed peace offerings. And there, in the presence of the people of Israel... He wrote on the stones a copy of the law of Moses, which he had written. And all Israel, sojourner as well as native-born, with their elders and officers and their judges, stood on opposite sides of the ark before the Levitical priests who carried the ark of the covenant of the Lord. Half of them in front of Mount Gerizim, half of them in front of Mount Ebal just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded at the first to bless the people of Israel. And afterward, he read all the words of the law, the blessing and the curse, according to all that is written in the book of the law. There was not one word of all that Moses commanded that Joshua did not read before all the assembly of Israel and the women and the little ones and the sojourners who lived among them. Father, I pray in the name of Jesus, on the authority of your word and by the power of your spirit, that you will speak to your people. God, I pray that you would untwist hearts that are in a knot today. God, I pray that you would bring healing. I pray that you would restore hope. I pray that you would bring back the joy of salvation. I pray that you would awaken those that are asleep and that you would give life to those that are dead in sin. Most of all, we pray that the name of Jesus is lifted high. In Christ's name we ask, amen. You may be seated. Last weekend, this weekend, and probably next weekend. In the span of three weekends, you'll see it on social media. You may experience yourself. You will see a monumental shift. So many families, many of whom are in our church, so many families took their children off to college this weekend. I've seen the pictures. Dorm rooms decorated in ways that I would never have dreamed of. I would go to that school. <laughs> Dorm rooms decorated up, pictures taken, moms and dads shedding tears. Because what's happened is an irreversible 
change. Things will never be the same. And as monumental as that is, there's something else even more monumental. Because this very morning, all across the United States, on college campuses, there are young Christian men and women getting up out of bed, getting dressed, and going to worship. And to the untrained eye, when you see that, these little pockets of young men and women getting up and going to a place of worship, when you see that, you know that it is completely countercultural. It's, it's much like what you did today. You rode into a place to gather with a group of people that have something in common, although you might have everything else not in common. You got up on a Sunday when, when it would have been a whole lot easier to not do that. You, you've come in because there's something in you that tells you this gathering, the gathering of God's people, is important. That's the danger that we felt when COVID hit and we didn't know what, what it was and how we should respond and churches closed. And, and you, you might remember all of the fallout, the spiritual and emotional fallout of not being connected with the people you're called to be connected to. There's an impulse in us, even when we can't get here, if we somehow are prevented or you're traveling or gone there's an impulse in the Christian psyche that says, I should be there. It's always been like that. From the very beginning, it's been ingrained in God's people. It's always been that we stop what we're doing to worship. That's exactly what's happened in Joshua chapter 8. Now let's take a few moments and catch up to where we are here in Joshua chapter 8. You can just flip the pages of your Bible back, three or four pages back, and we'll start at the beginning. Joshua chapter 1, there God calls Joshua and tells him, Moses, Moses, my servant is dead. You now are the leader. Joshua takes the helm, and as he does, he trusts that God is in it. He sends the two spies into Jericho. There we meet Rahab. How in the world did this woman of ill repute, she is in the lineage of Jesus. We see the grace of God that saves sinners right there in Rahab. Rahab, uh, she houses the spies. The spies give a report. Joshua leads the people. We get to chapter 3. They know they're going to take Jericho. They cross the Jordan River in this miraculous turn of events. God stops the water. You know the miracle. And all those people come across the Jordan River on dry ground. They get on the other side and they stack those stones up, 12 of them, to say, this is something God did. And afterwards, they realize as they look into the promised land, they have not had the Passover. God does something there. Chapter 4 and then chapter 5, God renews the covenant. They hadn't had the Passover in who knows how long, and so they take the Passover and they remember how on that night before the exodus that the angel of death came through the camp and passed over every house whose post had blood across it, reminding us that it is the blood of Jesus that saves us, the Passover. 
They have the Passover, and after the Passover, they march into Jericho. They get their orders. What a strange thing to do. Chapter 6, they go around the city, and God miraculously makes the walls fall down. It is a wonderful victory, except one thing, there's sin. Joshua don't know about that sin. He don't know that Achan has done what he's done. And so Joshua thinks, we have momentum now. Let's move into AI. Let's keep moving forward. And so he does what he always does, sends the spies in, check out the land, and they say it's really not, it's really not that impressive. Just send about 3,000. They didn't, they didn't ask God. They didn't pray about it. They didn't think it through. And they didn't know that Israel was stunned because of her sin. There's a rout. You can read it for yourself in chapter 6 and then in chapter 7. Israel is defeated. This is not how this is supposed to happen. Joshua falls on his face. He's weeping. Like any good leader, sometimes you just go into a crisis and it's so big, it feels so overwhelming. Joshua just asks God, why? That's where we find him and God speaks to Joshua. There's sin there, Joshua. Joshua, gives him, Joshua gets the prescription from God as to how to solve the problem, which is a reminder that sin is a really big issue. Chapter 7, Achan is brought out and God's wrath falls on him and all associated with him to purge Israel of sin. Chapter 8, they're ready now. Chapter 8 is the victory at Ai. They march into Ai. You know the story in chapter 8. You have this detailed account of ambush and defeat and the full army and they win this wonderful victory. God gives them the plunder and it really seems like things are going so well. They get to the end of the victory, and you expect, let's keep moving forward. That is not at all what happens. The writer tells us in verse 30, at that time. You see, they knew what we need to know, that God's people know their need for worship. If you are God's people, that's me and you, God's people, we know our need for worship. And if you are a son or daughter of God bought by the blood of Jesus, that's something that's ingrained in you. So here's what I want to do. I want to frame this passage this morning with the idea of worship, and I want to look at it through the lens of worship and see if we can't somehow learn just a couple of things about worship from this passage. Here's the first one, number one. We learn from this passage that worship is essential. For God's people, bought by the blood of Jesus, God's Son, given a life for God's purpose, one of those things that we cannot do without is corporate gathering of worship. In fact, you can take it from this passage in verse 30. You see that it is of the highest priority you'll notice that they are winning. Don't you like it when you have some momentum? If you've ever been on a team when things are going well and you just keep hitting home runs or you just keep scoring touchdowns or you've, you've been a part of a company where there's momentum or even with the children, things are going well for a while. You want to sort of keep in that direction. They have momentum. And God says, Paul, even as well as it's going, even as important as your journey is, 
even as this battle unfolds, even as the promise to take the promised land has yet to be fulfilled, we got to stop and worship. This is a strange time to insert worship. I wonder, what is it in your life? <clears throat> what is the one thing, maybe it is worship, what is the one thing you will not miss? I mean, no matter what's going on, you're going to do that. Is it worship? What we find in this frame here is the picture of God's people is that um, worship as, as being essential is the highest priority. But, but not only that, you know what worship does? Worship is a reminder. You're going to see it here. Worship is the reminder that there is a God and you are not it. That's what you see right here. Notice what the text says in verse 30. At that time, Joshua built an altar to the Lord, capital L-O-R-D, the Lord who is the God of Israel. What you find there is this picture of this personal God, Yahweh. In the Old Testament, he has revealed himself as a personal God, Yahweh. Uh, that's where the name Joshua comes from. Joshua means Yahweh saves. That name Joshua becomes a shadow and the pointer and the type of the better Joshua, Jesus, who lived perfectly, died on a cross for sinners. God raised him from the dead. And any sinner that believes can know God personally. There is this understanding that, that God is personal. But not only personal, God is specific to a people. Do you see that in the text? That, it, that is the Lord who is the God of Israel. Now, as Christians, we believe that God created everything and everybody. That he is the one true God that he loves everybody. We do believe that, that God loves everyone. But he loves his people with a different love. He loves his people with a covenant love found in Jesus. He loves his people with the same love that he loves his son, Jesus. That, that not only is this God personal revealed to us in Jesus, this God is specific he takes a certain group of people and he shines his grace on that group of people, those who are in Christ. And with that in mind, we celebrate and worship on a Sunday, the Lord's Day. And that Sunday reminds us that regardless of what's going on in our week, we pause to remember that this good God is personal and he's chosen us specifically in Jesus. But you know what about worship? Worship can oftentimes be and feel inconvenient. You know, when something is essential, if worship is essential, you don't mind it being inconvenient. Let me show you where I get that. You'll notice that they are winning in AI. And you read verse 30. At that time, Joshua built an altar to the Lord, the God of Israel, and he built it on Mount Ebal. Now, you go into a little uh, geography lesson, what you find out, is that Ebal is not in Ai. Ebal is about 25 or 30 miles away. Now, if you did a census, <clears throat> most um, experts think that Israel was made up of around conservatively 600,000 people. Some people say even as many as a million people. So you're going to try to herd 600,000 people 
25 miles all the way over to Ebal just so they can worship because Moses said to do so back in Deuteronomy. What you find is that worship is, for God's people, it's always been inconvenient. It's inconvenient here. I mean, with all of our modern conveniences at Hickory Grove and all of the great provision that God has given us, and we are so thankful for that, this building is pushed up onto the corner of Harris Boulevard and, what road is it, Hickory Grove Road? I get the roads. Yeah, Harris and Hickory Grove. So it's pushed into the corner here, and if you come to church here, and if you don't get here just in time, you park way, and you have to run a marathon, talk about a 5K, a marathon to get up to the building. It's terrible, and if it's raining, it's really inconvenient. Not only that, we put the time to worship on the Lord's Day right in the morning. I mean, Sunday morning is still one of those times, even in the United States, it's still kind of protected, where it, there's really not a whole lot going on on Sunday morning. And here we've put this time to worship. It, it genuinely can be inconvenient. Not only that, you might live 20, 30 miles away. It may take 45 minutes to get to the place where you worship. It can be inconvenient. If, if worship is essential and it is the highest priority, isn't it worth whatever inconvenience you have to go through? <clears throat> not only that, not only that, Sunday's a, I mean, Sunday's a great time. Truthfully, Sunday would be a really good time to sleep in. I recognize that Sunday would be a great time to sleep in and drink coffee and sit there and relax in the morning. You could go and search the internet. If I were sleeping in on a Sunday and searching, I'd be looking at cars, I'd be looking at what their prices are, saying the market is so high, you can't buy a truck now, and the classic cars, why are they so high? That's, that's the kind of thing I'd be going on in my mind. Just enjoy in the morning. And some of you are able to say, look, I, I mean, I work six days and I got one day. I just, I just would like to have one day to me. Now, if that's the prevailing thought, what happens is you now have said that you are God and not God. You see, Christian people understand that there is a God and, and I'm not it. And the inconvenience of worship, certainly I've got to jump some hurdles and it means extra for me, but I'm going there. Not only that, Worship, um, if it's essential, it's also an act of obedience. Isn't that what, um, what you find here in the text, verse 30 and 31? At that time, Joshua built an altar of the Lord, to the Lord, the God of Israel, on Mount Ebal, and he did it just as, Moses, just as Moses had commanded, just as it is written back in Deuteronomy 27. That's all this is, is a commentary on Deuteronomy 27. And it's just Joshua actually being obedient to what God has commanded. For Christians gathering together with the body of Christ with other believers on the Lord's day to worship is an actual act of obedience. Isn't that what the writer said in Hebrews? Chapter 10, verse 24, do not forsake the assembly. Not only that, worship reminds us of this great victory that God has given us. Look where they built that altar. Look with me at verse 30 and 31. At that time, Joshua built an altar to the Lord, the God of Israel, and he built it on Mount Ebal. Okay, to, to understand that, you go back to Deuteronomy 27, 
you have the two mountains. Mount Gerizim is where the blessings will be read. Mount Ebal is where the curses will be read. Do you see that they've built the altar on the mountain of curse? You know why they did that? That shows our God's victory over the curse. You draw a straight line. Now come with me to the New Testament. Let's go over to the resurrection. Why do we worship on Sunday? Why do we worship? We worship on Sunday because Jesus Christ raised from the dead on a Sunday, and it is that day, it is that act, not just the cross, but the resurrection that tells us that we have been given victory over death, hell, sin, and the grave. Worship reminds us of our victory. And so we come in on a Sunday morning being beaten up by the week. It's been terrible and COVID's all around. We can look at the news and things have collapsed in Afghanistan. And what we need to do is come in here together and sing these songs and hear these prayers and open God's word and be reminded there is victory in Jesus. There is victory in what Christ has done for us. We put an altar right there on the cursed mountain and we say God has given us victory. There's something else. If worship is essential, then let's get to it. Worship must be Christ-centered. It must be Christ-centered. Let me show you where I get that. It's right there in verse 31. Um, notice what the text says. Then verse 30 and 31, at that time Joshua built an altar to the Lord the God of Israel on Mount Ebal, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded the people of Israel, as it is written in the book of the law of Moses, of Moses they're doing what, what God told them to do, an uncut altar, an altar of uncut stones. Nobody really knows why. They're uncut stones, maybe to show their distinction. Upon which no man is wielding an iron tool, and they offered, look at the offerings, two of them. They offered burnt offerings and peace, or fellowship offering. And what you have here is a picture now. Three pictures. Joshua is fulfilling the law of God. Joshua is doing what he's been told to do by Moses. He fulfills the law of Moses. He becomes a type that points to the better and true Joshua, Jesus, who will fulfill the law in a way that we can't. It's not only that he died on the cross for our sins, and not only that he was raised from the dead, but he lived perfectly. And that righteousness, when you believe in Jesus, that righteousness is put on you. Uh, not only that, you look at this, you look at this uh, sacrifice, and there you'll find it in verse 31. This sacrifice is called a burnt offering. So I started looking at that. What does that really have to do with me as a Christian? So I traced it back to Leviticus, there in Leviticus chapter 3. Leviticus 3 says that the burnt offering, when you offer that up, the one giving the offering, come put his hand on that animal so that you might be identified with that animal. That animal is killed and bloodshed for, go look at it, the word atonement. That the sacrifice, the burnt, off, the burnt offering becomes a shadow. The writer of Hebrews 10 says that it is a shadow, has to be done over and over again. It is a picture of the one time sacrifice of Jesus on the cross in the place of sinners. And that writer says in Hebrews 10, 12, that when Christ had offered a once and for all sacrifice for sin, that he sat down at the right hand of God because it is finished. This picture right here reminds us 
that our worship, it, it, it must not be me-centered. It is not centered on our felt needs. It is not designed to make us feel better. It is designed to glory in the cross of Jesus, to stand there under the forgiveness of Jesus, to, to celebrate the goodness of God found in Jesus. But there's another sacrifice there. It's the burnt offering, but also the peace offering, or yours might call it the fellowship offering. So I had to go track this offering. What does that one mean? Go back and look, and, and Leviticus teaches us that the fellowship offering is a free will. That, that is to say, it is this voluntary act of saying, I love God. I want to worship God. I, I want my life to honor God. I give myself freely to God. Here is this offering that is nothing more than this binding of fellowship that reminds us that we are His and He is ours. This demonstrates this, it really is a demonstration of being in right relationship to God. Don't you want to be right relationship to God? You see, worship shows that, that we have this need for renewing grace, to meet with God and to meet with God's people, to, to recenter our lives on His Word, to hear it spoken into our ears, to, to feel it sung, to breathe in and, and exhale prayers unto God. It's why you hear us preach the gospel every Sunday. It's not because it's a tent revival that every Sunday we're preaching the gospel so that some sinner will be saved. We do hope that, but it's God's children that need to be reminded of the gospel, that there at the gospel of Jesus at the cross is the grace that not only not only saves me, sustains me, it gives me strength to go on. I feel the love of God because of the grace of the gospel found at the cross. That needs to be heard every single Sunday. Worship must be Christ-centered. Let's look at it further. What else do we know about worship? Here's the third thing. Worship has to be true to God's Word. You, you probably, true to God's Word. You probably heard it. All throughout verse 30 to verse 35, what you have there is nothing more than a living out of what Moses was told in Deuteronomy 27. In fact, you pick up on the phrase um, in verse 31, the little phrase, as it is written. That sort of becomes our catchphrase here at Hickory Grove, as it is written. We live our lives as it is written. I mean, you go through the passage you go through the passage, you'll see how the Torah, which is the law, how the law of God takes preeminence. You, you see it in verse 31, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded the people of Israel. You keep getting down there to verse 32. There in the, pre, uh, the presence of the people of Israel, he wrote on the stones a copy of the law of Moses. So if you go back and read Deuteronomy, they plastered these stones so that it was smooth, and he just wrote. I don't know if he wrote the first five books. There'd be a lot of writing if he did that. Did he write the Ten Commandments? Did he write the blessings and the cursing? Whatever he did, what becomes preeminent is that worship is not driven by an opinion or an agenda or the events of the world. Worship is not dictated by what's going on in society. Worship is dependent on God's Word. 
It's why a preacher opens the Bible and starts worship here with the Bible. It's why our songs are sung to God and about God from the Bible. It's why when it comes time for church, the Bible is open and a preacher is going to come and just walk through what does the passage say. Thank God we, we have his word that guides us. His word guides us. Thank God we have his word to correct our sin. Thank God we, we have his word to inform. How do you grow as a disciple? You get more of this information inside of you. Thank God we have his word to heal our broken hearts, to convict us of sin, to, and to come in hungry and to have your soul nourished by the word of God, to, to strengthen the hands that have gotten weak because of the world we live in, to embolden you. I got something uh, yesterday that talked a little bit about some of the Christians that are now in Afghanistan. I mentioned in my prayer, there are Christians that have been threatened by the Taliban and told, we know who you are and where you meet. And if you meet, we will destroy you. There are Christians that are having to make a decision. Are they going to do what Christians do on the Lord's day? And what they have here. This is what the Bible does. It emboldens their hearts to be able to withstand whatever's coming their way. We have the Bible that, the Bible that settles us in a world that is thrown upside down. I can go to God's Word and read it and have my heart straightened and, and settled. And, and this Word shows us our need for Jesus. The footprints of Jesus are on every page of the Bible and every page of the Bible point to our need for Christ. Let me see if can I can I give you one more thing in this passage that informs us about worship. Here's the fourth thing. Here's what worship does. Worship strengthens God's people and glorifies God. You, worship strengthens. So when you gather with God's people, you're strengthened. Two things are happening. Here, it's you being strengthened by the music and by the singing, by the psalms and the spiritual songs, by the Word of God, the Spirit of God using that to glorify the Son of God. That's going on. And all the while, as you are being strengthened by worship, God is being glorified. You know what we get reminded of in verse 30? We get reminded. This helps you worship. We get reminded of God's sovereignty. You see it right there in verse 30. They built an altar on Mount Ebal to the Lord, the God of Israel. The one who is in charge. It is good to be reminded that our God is sovereign. There are times when we question it, though. We get in the middle of something and you start questioning, why is this going on? Why is this happening to me? I, I had that happen to me Friday. Friday, I worked in the yard, and after I worked in the yard, I took a shower, a nice hot shower, but then if you step outside, you're sweating again. But I knew I had to go to the ball game, so I took another shower, and it was a cold shower. I determined that my hot water heater is out. I had noticed that there was water coming out from under my house, but I know I got a sump pump there. It rained a couple days ago. Maybe it's just pumping out. I didn't think anything of it. Go to the ball game here um, at school. After the ball game, go home, and as I'm coming in, I looked up my neighbor's driveway, and there's water coming down. And I thought to myself, I wonder what's going on over there. As I pulled up in the driveway, it occurred to me, you know what, there may be an issue with my hot water heater since, I, <laughs> since I've seen a couple of signs. So I went and opened underneath the house, and as I opened the door, I could hear it like Niagara Falls. 
I know that if you can turn the water off, going into that water, you can, hot water heater, you can have water, it won't be hot, but I couldn't get the handle to turn. The minerals in our well water had it frozen. So I had to turn off all the water. Right, so I'm at home, Condes in Mississippi, by myself, got no food, got no water. <laughs> you didn't know how, what kind of danger I was in, did you, Friday? <laughs> and thinking, why is this going on? And you start questioning. I mean, that's just a little small. You start questioning, why is God? Now, thankfully, got good smart plumbers that know what to do and fix it. Every, everybody's in good shape now in my house. I'm very thankful for that. But I started thinking, you know what it's good to do? It's good to come in after the week you've had to sit and sing and pray and hear, be reminded, God is in control. You know what worship reminds us that God is in control? We're reminded also that our God is not silent. I mean, over and over again, you hear right here the, the phrase, as it is written, as it is written. In other words, our God has shown us what his promises are, what his precepts are, what his purpose is. You don't have to wonder, what is God's will for my life? God's will for your life is to be more like Jesus. Read the book and you'll find out that our God is not silent, that our God is a God of mercy. What a beautiful passage to be reminded that our God is merciful. You, you see it in verse 31, those offerings. It's a reminder that although God is just and the judge, that in Jesus, he shows mercy to his people and forgiveness. It's good to be reminded as a Christian that that's the world we live in, a world of grace. That when you are in Christ, God has forgiven you in Jesus. You know what worship reminds us of? I just saw this as I was getting near the end. When we worship, we're strengthened because of diversity. Did you read it in verse 33 and you saw it in verse 35? When you read verse 33, look at all the people there. You have the people in Israel, they're, they're sojourners and they're native-born, they're elders and officers and judges. And you have the Levitical priest, you drop down to verse 35, and there at the end you've got the whole assembly, you have all of the women there, you have the little ones, you have the sojourners that, that lived among them. You have a reminder that it's not some monolithic, here is this aggregate, this, this group of different people that have one thing and only one thing in common. That is God. We're, we're reminded in worship that it is, it is God who is with us. Isn't that what God said to Joshua? Certainly we know the strong and courageous, but he said, I'll be with you. Something occurred to me when I looked at this passage and realized that the ark of God was there in the middle of the people. Do you remember back in chapter 3 when they crossed the Jordan and the ark went out in front of them and Joshua said, okay, you make sure you stay about 2,000 cubits back. Stay 1,000 yards back. He, they couldn't even see the ark. The ark would, it would be the symbol of God's presence and it would go on before them, but it was so holy and yet, something's happened here. Chapter 8, verse 32 and 33. They've gone to Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal. Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal, about a mile apart at their peaks. But you come down the slopes. There, as the slopes meet, maybe 150 yards, 600,000 people 
verse 32 and 33, gathered around the ark, being reminded that God is with them. You know what worship tells us? We gather on Sundays just to be reminded that our God is with us, that this worship is essential. It is centered on Jesus, that that this worship comes from God's Word, that this, this worship strengthens your heart and glorifies your God. This worship is found and it begins at the cross of Jesus. Now this morning, we're going to close, and as we do, I'm just going to ask a couple of questions for a reflection. So as we close this morning, let me invite you just to uh, bow your heads for a moment, and in your mind and heart, you just answer the questions to yourself. Here's the first question I'd like to put before you. For you, for you, does worship feel essential? Here's another way to ask it. I'll ask it like this. <clears throat> Here's a more pointed way. What excuses have you used to miss worship? I've heard lots of people say why they don't come to church that have previously said they were Christians. Then I'll, let me put it another way. Has anger or frustration with God or with someone else? Maybe you would say, I've just been frustrated with God. Why would I do this? Or angry at God. Has that kept you from coming for those of you that are here you've you've made the commitment to come are you a spectator or do you participate in worship do you check your phone or your watch or are you worshiping What attitude, what action, what attitude do you need to repent of? Maybe you need to repent of that this morning. After I pray, we'll sing. We'll just open the altar and invite you if you'd like to come and pray. Talk to a pastor. They'll be down here. It's the response. Ask God to work in your heart. Father, thank you for the grace you give us in Jesus. Thank you for the love that you've shown us. Thank you for your provision in worship. And I pray now you would move in your people. In Jesus' name we ask, amen.